0: So my thesis installation will be about this process of unlearning. It is staged as a kind of sci fiction scene or something like this, but it's not a contemporary science fiction. It's like science fiction of 1960s, 1970s. And I think why it's important? I think 1960s and 1970s was the point when the humanity decided what direction the technology will develop. And if before we thought about technology more in terms of application, to our processes like we will fly and explore space or we will build flying cars or something like this so after that when internet was introduced we considered technology not like a tool but rather like a substitute to ourselves people are mortal and when we think about How can we get this internal life? We're not thinking how to modify our biological structure. We're thinking how to digitalize our brain and put it in a machine, and machine can live forever. (laughs) So it's a completely different approach to technology. Instead of being a service, it became a replacement.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 253rd episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Anastasia Sitnikova, who spoke with me from the Chicago area, where she currently is an MFA candidate graduating at the University of Illinois, Chicago. We talk a bit about her background growing up in Russia, moving and studying a variety of subjects, and eventually working in the advertising field. She eventually moved to the U.S. with her family and began taking a number of courses that included a variety of art classes and became really, really interested in it. Anastasia explores a ton of different materials from sculptural forms to installation to video. And what's especially interesting about the work is that it's really driven by the concepts, the exploration of technology and how it impacts human nature and psychology. And of course, we talk about a variety of different pieces where she explores those ideas. Her MFA thesis exhibition is entitled Ordinary Horrors, and that opens April 16th through 23rd virtually at Gallery 400 with a thesis talk on Friday, April 23rd from 6 to 730. You can find links on studiobreak.com and be sure to check out her website, Anastasia Sitnikova, and you can follow her on Instagram at Stacy underscore Sitnikova. I would like to note real quick that Anastasia was selected as one of our MFA competition winners in 2020 by our juror Tim Kowalczyk. We are excited to announce that our 2021 student competition is now open. So if you're listening to this and you're currently enrolled as a BA, BFA, or MA MFA art student, you should apply to the competition. Once again, our juror this year is Kendra Balgren from James May Gallery, so we're very excited about this year's competition. If you're interested in applying, just head on over to studiobreak.com, look for our student competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email. With your website address or portfolio and or Instagram handle and you are done. Five undergraduate and five graduate winners will be chosen to feature their work on Studio Break and appear on a podcast. Once again, go to StudioBreak.com, look for the student competition page for more information. While you're on Studio Break, make sure to check out some of the archived episodes. Once again, each of those feature images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and you can listen right there in the default player or click those links and subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And of course, follow us on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. With those announcements out of the way, let's dive right into this episode with Anastasia Sitnikova. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Anastasia Sitnikova, how are you doing?
0: I'm great. Thank you. How are you?
1: Excellent. We were kind of reminiscing. It seems like time moves uh, really fast, but at the same time doesn't, right? I mean, you applied long ago for student competition and, and was selected and, and super excited to, to have you on and, and talk all about your work and, and learn all about you. So thanks so much for applying.
0: Thank you so much for inviting. It's really a pleasure and it's an honor.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, you know, as we've been discussing, I'm especially interested in learning about your, your background and, and You know, obviously, how you uh, got to where you're at with your work and and all sorts of things. But let's, you know, maybe just start there. Where where are you from?
0: Currently, I live in Buffalo Grove in the northwestern suburb of Chicago. We moved here seven years ago already, but I was born in Moscow. My father was from Belarus and my mother was from Moscow suburb. So they studied in the Moscow Aviation Institute together. And after his graduation, my father served in the army, so we moved often. And I can't quite trace already all this movement, but I remember that we lived in Ukraine for a year or two. And by the age I was six, my father got a position at the aviation test center in the south of Russia, and we settled there. So that place was a typical closed Soviet city, surrounded by a concrete wall. And it was a very strange microcosmos, kind of isolated from the rest of the universe. And I think it's the only place that I ever considered my home. Mm-hmm. But when USSR started disintegrating, my father left the army, and we moved to Moscow. And it was kind of a very painful separation for me because first I lost my hometown, and very soon I lost a kind of my country. Uh, The years after that were pretty tough for everyone, most people were just trying to survive and maybe because of this I kind of, I lived in Moscow for almost two decades and I kind of failed to fall in love with the city. When we moved here in 2014 I didn't feel homesick so I missed and I still miss people there but I never missed this town Mm -hmm. because I didn't quite feel comfortable there anyway. And, uh, yeah, we've been living um, in the U.S. the last seven years.
1: Interesting, interesting. And so were you always kind of interested in in making things when you were growing up? And, you know, maybe talk a little bit about some of those, I guess, earlier kind of experiences. I, I know that one of the things that's really interesting to me is that, so many artists come to art through different ways. So some some come to it much later. Some, you know, reconnect to that, you know, thing that they used to do when they were young. But was that something that you were interested in growing up, is art?
0: That is very kind of complicated story mm-hmm. <laughs> in my case, because I did have some interaction with art as a child. My probably earliest memory is connected to my grandfather. So he had two sisters and two brothers, and both his brothers died in World War II. And I don't know the destiny of one of them, but I know that the other one, he burned in his tank in Berlin in 1945. And when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a tank operator, mm-hmm. but I also, I don't know for sure, but I like to think that he was an artist because in our family house, uh, there were many watercolor sketches and there were oil portraits stored on the attic. So it was probably my earliest like interaction with art in my family and realization that some someone at least someone had these abilities but also both my parents drew really well and after quitting army and a few years of very chaotic like search for a new job and a new trade my father started making knives so first he made knives out of curiosity and then kind of approached it in a more professional manner so now he's a quite a well established knife maker in Russia. His knives are in many Russian museums. Wow. And though I didn't live with him when he started his art practice, so I don't have like first hand Mm -hmm. witnessing experience of his growth, but of course he's a big influence on my decision to become an artist.
1: Was there any kind of like formal education in terms of the arts or is it something where you kind of had to maybe choose something that was maybe more practical or what was that like, I, I guess, in terms of developing into what would be your, you know, like secondary school?
0: Yeah, so that's why it gets complicated because art education systems in Russia is completely different. Mm-hmm. Public schools, they don't offer art classes in the middle or high school, only in the elementary school. And if someone wants to continue with art, they have to enroll in a so-called children's art school and they study there for six years and then they transfer to an art university. So I did attend this children's art school for a year or so, but... Due to some family circumstances, I had to drop from it. And um, by the time I graduated from my high school, this question was already on the horizon because I couldn't compete with kids who did graduate from the children's art school. Mm-hmm. But I still was a kind of quite a crafty child, I would say. So I worked with pretty much everything I can could get access to to, so I worked with some natural materials and something like wheat straw painting, and then I was into like embroidery and knitting, and for some time my favorite was silk flowers, and then kind of in my high school, in the beginning of my high school, we were very limited in resources as families, so I decorated my own clothes, mm-hmm. but I started working at 14, so I didn't have any time for hobby anymore. And my first work was a kind of similar to this day's graphic design. So I worked for a publishing house and prepared books for publication. And basically, by the time when I graduated from high school, as I mentioned, I didn't consider art already. I wanted something more practical. We called 1990s uh, the hungry 90s. So that was absolutely not Imaginable to consider any profession that wouldn't guarantee you income because, again, people were just trying to survive and couldn't Mm afford, you know, this kind of luxury. So I wanted to be a lawyer and I even attended a law school for a year in a preparatory class. And uh, by the end of this year, I decided that it was the most boring profession on the (laughs) earth, and there was no way I could be a lawyer. (laughs) So, at the last moment, I applied to a new program, which was called uh, Management in Hotel and Tourism Business. Mm -hmm. From this title, I only heard tourism, and I always wanted to travel. So, kind of <laughs> very soon I realized that it wasn't about travel, it was about <laughs> business and management. I was very disappointed with this fact. But again, education in Russia is different. You can not just change your major. You need to drop one program and apply to another and start it over. So, I wanted to drop and apply it for a program in journalism because I was good in writing. But I was offered that just by chance, I was offered a job in a travel agency that just recently bought a business magazine that was writing about tourism business. So I was learning about tourism management and writing about tourist management. And it kind of made sense Mm -hmm. for some time. (laughs) But again, when I graduated from my management program, I was already quite exhausted in it. And I thought about coming back to this art career idea. Time became more kind of calm in Russia. So uh, so, I, I enrolled in a, in the Moscow Architectural University, again, in a preparatory class, and I attended it for a year. But I was offered promotion to the editor-in-chief and also a place in my PhD program. I chose what was rational. <laughs> sure,
2: sure. <laughs> I dropped
0: from the Architectural University and continued with PhD, and it didn't turn out well, so I had to quit my job. I had a kind of... It was bad. <laughs> Eventually, I did complete PhD and was very disappointed with it and changed my profession and kind of started working in marketing. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything was kind of fine till my first son was born. And again, it was a big depression for me and kind of hard time. So just to keep saying, I enrolled in a private art school and again attended it for a year. But then I was offered a new job a well-paid job and I had still a toddler at home so again I made a rational choice (laughs) I dropped from the art school again and continued working in marketing till we moved here and when we moved here I still wanted to apply to an MBA program because I realized that my uh, kind of work experience in Russia is not relevant here Mm -hmm. yeah but MBA programs are expensive (laughs) (laughs) Also, I needed to prepare for exams, and one of them was TOEFL exam, which uh, checks your knowledge of English. So I went to my community college <laughs> to take an ESL class, and they sent me to English one on one. And uh, you know, already my recipe when you don't know what to do, take an art class. So (laughs) I took English one on one, speech one on one, and a couple of art classes from my community college. And um, I think for the first time, I've seen like real results of what I did. So I took art classes before and I was kind of okay with them, but I didn't think that I had such, it wasn't that successful, I believe. And for the first time, I kind of, got the taste for this real success in art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I decided to stay for one more semester, and uh, I think that was kind of it. <laughs> it was decided by that point. So I took Design 2 class, and Design 2 class uh, at Harper's at the community college I studied in, covered some basic techniques and tools in woodworking and metalworking. And when I came to this Design 2 class, I hadn't held a screwdriver in my hands ever before mm-hmm. <laughs> so my first impulse was just to prove myself that i can do it and uh, it happens that i could do it <laughs> so i took several more classes in sculpture with uh professor jason peard and i took uh, several classes in ceramics with professor sam Rose there And then I kind of started working as a student aide in ceramics and sculpture studio. And then I was promoted to lab tech in ceramics and sculpture. So when I realized that it was getting serious, I decided that I had to continue my education in art. And uh, I didn't transfer because I already had a degree. Mm -hmm. So I started preparing for an MFA application. I spent four years at Harper preparing for MFA. So basically, it's like a full undergraduate program, just Mm -hmm. close at my home and much more affordable and it's actually a great program there so i think during my third year i took an intro to photography class with uh, charles roderick and i think it's quite influenced the direction of my uh, sculptural practice Mm -hmm. because basically when i took this class i didn't know what to photograph (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and I was absolutely not interested in photographing reality or documenting reality, and I didn't know what to do. So I started for staging some kind of situations with people, and very soon I started making objects specifically for photographs. And I think it's opened a whole new bunch of opportunities for me, because like community college doesn't have room for students to create something like a, a large scale. Installation or to work on a larger scale. But when I moved out of the studio and I worked like in the field on in in other locations, I got access to larger scale and I started thinking not only about the objects I created for those photographs, but for the whole setting, which eventually kind of led me to the idea of installation. And also it gave me this like very important experience working in the field when you really have like this 30 minutes or one hour to install and whatever. If you didn't calculate something right, that's your moment, <laughs> now or never. So I think it was a very like a boot camp for me, those uh, installations outdoor. And after that, I was perfectly ready for indoor installations. And also when I transferred or came to my MFA program at UIC, I added video work to my practice, and the fact that I had already experience with photography, I think, uh, made it easier for me and more logical for me, I think, video as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So one thing that is interesting to me that stands out is that approach to kind of those you know, 3D kind of built environments and and thinking about sculpture, you know, you kind of describe this trajectory where you're, you know, doing ceramics and, you know, you had uh, held a a screwdriver in your hands, you know, maybe take some time to describe the work that you're making at the end of that experience there at Harper. What were the formal qualities like? What were the concepts behind your work before you went on to start your MFA degree?
0: Pretty much like every new students a student in sculpture I started from making objects and as I mentioned I moved to this installation specifically designed for photography so I still was making objects I was finding a place and I was creating an object specifically for this place Mm -hmm. and uh, then I kind of moved back to the studio and because my kind of concept has changed and I will probably talk about concept a bit so I was losing the concept while working in the field so I moved back to the studio and uh, kind of worked more on the objects and those objects were usually on the wall Somehow in between, probably, painting and sculpture, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you wish, because they were on the wall, obviously. Uh, they were not intended as painting, so I did have a couple of paintings and printmaking project during that time. And again, when I came to UIC, I eventually got access to space mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my, my practice immediately changed its direction to installation because now I had objects but also had uh, some place to work with and I started like not just finding place and placing objects there but con- considering like the entire set right away so more like approaching it almost like designing the space you know not just using it and inscribing my sculpture in it, but rather designing the entire space. If I think about it not as a space, but rather as an experience, and it's a combination of architecture and sculptural object, but also of video and of now some writings, and it's very layered experience, and I think it's also kind of fragmented in a way, but also Think that that's when my experience in marketing <laughs> comes <laughs> in because you know, I realize that we live in this kind of what we call informational noise mm-hmm. type of environment, it's not structured. You, as a person and as a consumer, you experience. Like this constant attack of all this information around you. You know, it's not like a then med- meditation when you sit and you can consume a particular idea and to kind of process it. That's all at the same time. And I think when I create those installations, it's the same like fragmented environments that you would interact normally in this society I just can't imagine it to be a kind of a consistent experience, probably because I don't have this experience and I don't understand how to communicate it. But I do understand how to put all these fragments together.
1: No, I think that actually really kind of summarizes things really nicely because it kind of also can kind of explain how you might kind of, you know, develop new work or or shift your ideas to something different. Was there like a specific you know ins- installation a first installation or or something like that that maybe we could talk a little about in depth just to kind of think about that first experience that you had mm-hmm. to kind of move away from just these objects on a wall
0: i think my practice it did develop in terms of format for sure and it does have a some kind of trajectory in terms of the way I present my work, but I think it was mostly driven by the concept behind it. And uh, the format just came with the opportunities I had at the time. So I had an opportunity to work with installation. So this concept found its way in installation. But if I didn't have it, maybe I could find another format to communicate it. So as I as I told, like, format for me is a very secondary thing that goes after the content, in a way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Originally, art for me was some kind of a therapy. As I mentioned, I kind of enrolled in these art classes, usually when things went really bad for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it kind of was my attempt to overcome this situation. So my ideas behind my work, they are personal, but they also kind of come from this psychological side i would say rather than from anything else and initially when i took art classes and i had to decide what my work is going to be about it kind of came naturally to me to make work about violence and I probably even didn't realize my choice back then. And maybe it was because like all this turbulence in Russia after the USSR fell apart and like this quite painful experience in 1990s when uh, Moscow was was a constant target for terrorist attacks as well as other Russian cities. And that kind of came for me like as a natural point of interest. Mm -hmm. And initially it was more... Direct. So I used bullet shells in my work, I cut dolls, I used bondage ties, and once I took a piece of leather to a shooting range and asked them to shoot it through and used it in my work as kind of symbol of uh, human skin. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was hu- wasn't human skin, it was animal skin. But anyway, when I spent more time with my art, my work also became more personal, I would say. There was a strange thing that happened with me when my second son was born and uh, epidural anesthesia wasn't very popular in Russia back then and uh, anyway I had some medical conditions that wouldn't allow me to use it but afterwards I needed kind of some (sighs) stitches and the doctor refused to provide any kind of anesthesia to me and I'm still puzzled was he just rational and he considered it a waste of time Or was it a manifestation of some kind of sadistic inclinations? Mm -hmm. But he told me that if I didn't like it that way, he wouldn't do it at all. And, you know, a woman after childbirth is quite a vulnerable, helpless creature. She's not in a position to argue. Anyway, I had some kind of hard time later to accept my body bag. And it was kind of looked very... Distorted and deformed to me, and this kind of case, I think, was a big influence for me eventually, because uh, it found its way to my work in the first like serious series that I did, uh, where I used kegel weight as a as a central object, and you know that kegel weight is used to kind of to restore some kind of perfection. I don't know for some reason my experience and this idea of perfection looked very ill for me. So I had a number of sculptures and the painting where I used this object and I had a counterpart to them where I used cock rings and because they serve basically the same function, like looking for some kind of perfection Mm -hmm. and it was my kind of little revenge maybe. But I think this series of work actually made me think about fetish and how it connects our mind and body. For a while, I worked with some kind of sex toys and other fetishist objects in my work. And while working on it, <laughs> I ran into an adult size pacifier mm-hmm. that became an inspiration for my first big installation, which was called Milk, um, that I did already at UAC. So this pacifier was obviously a sex toy, but in the description, it was suggested that it can be used in therapy. And that made me think about these traumatic experiences that people are often subjected as children and just uh, in general how what we do is dictated by our past experiences. And that made me look more careful at Freud and psychoanalysis in general. So recently I found a writer, also a psychoanalysis, Louis Kaplan, and she wrote about something that she called cultural culture of fetishism. And basically, by her definition, all late capitalism can be described as a fetishism because the main feature of this culture is treating people as commodity. And basically, the main strategy behind fetishism is to take something living and thus dangerous and to turn it into a dead and thus safe. Mm-hmm. That made me think about technology and robots in particular because robots take a special place in fetishist culture because they kind of like people, but they're already dead and mm-hmm. they're perfect in terms of fetish. And you know that some transhumanist artists like Steelark and Orlan were working in this direction. And also if you take something like cyberpunk and like when people are considering cutting off the like living organ or leaving a limb and replacing it with dead machine Mm -hmm. that I think perfectly fits this fetishist strategy so through this exploration I find this connection between fetish as a a kind of psychological object and technology if it makes sense so I was thinking more about technology since then and uh, my next installation was about technology in many ways and first way that it's obviously fetish object or fetish like phenomena to be more probably correct in my definition but also technology directly relates to violence because you know i see a clear connection between development of technology and war if you look at the history of world war one and World war two you can see that many uh, like technological novelties were developed during the war, and war is a great stimul for technology. And also, the current warfare it makes uh, violence an abstract category because now weapon is unmanned, and kind of killing it becomes anonymous. And generally speaking, I'm not sure if it benefits human nature when we don't take responsibility for killing other people, and instead we just hire machines to do it for us. Mm-hmm. Walter Benjamin once noticed that only war makes it possible to mobilize all of today's technological resources while maintaining property relationships. So obviously technology is connected to violence and to war, and one of my pieces, the piece that I made after Milk. I tried to create this place of confrontation, and it was probably not that mature at the time, and it's probably still not that mature as that direction of my art practice. Mm -hmm. But basically, that was a system of cameras. They were surveillance cameras, but they were visible. And those cameras covered the entire room, and uh, the video was live-streamed back to the screens placed in this room. And the idea behind it wasn't surveillance, and actually it was to create this point of interaction with technology and to make people choose. Mm -hmm. Because some people, of course, choose to hide from the cameras and uh, some people choose to play with the cameras. And again, my point is that technology is a choice, it's not a need. And we may complain about surveillance and about consumerism, but we consent to participate in it when we buy a new iPhone or Google phone every year and take it with us. Mm So, given the destructive power of technology, I was thinking to what degree it's necessary and what particular from this is necessary and what is not. And, you know, there is a beautiful novel by Strugatsky Brothers called Roadside Picnic. I'm not sure if you've ever read it, but it describes... A situation like <laughs> the plot of this novel—it's a science fiction novel—that uh, aliens uh, stopped at Earth just for one night, and when they left, they left behind some uh, examples of technology that people couldn't quite comprehend, and that was very harmful for people eventually. And they called those landing places zones and they closed it and the government restricted access to those zones and the whole kind of plot of this novel is built around how people get access to technologies that they don't quite comprehend and Mm -hmm. can't quite control and this novel was written before Chernobyl happened it's almost like an illustration to the Chernobyl catastrophe, and many people compare the two now. Uh, it was almost like a prediction.
1: One of the things that's so interesting to think about that relative to technology, like you pointed out that, you know, we sign all of our consent away, you know, or literally like our all of our devices listen to us so that when we open up a search engine or, you know, you see it in the peripheries of your email, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're being advertised to. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about that piece is that, you know, we can see all that exposure of all the, all the wiring or kind of being more made aware of what we don't necessarily think about when it comes to technology or surveillance or those types of things. And I think, you know, that, that's something that adds a a level of interest and i'm I'm curious were people generally kind of interested in interacting, or was it like you described where some of them were, and then some of them were just kind of not wanting to be you know part of this?
0: I think some of them were some of them were not it's a normal kind of direction. It's difficult to imagine now that someone will decide to you know give up their phone and just continue into this no technology world. It's not a point of my research to reject the technology, but rather to consider how technology changes human nature and how it can contribute or take away from violence in humans, because I think those two are so closely related. So it's interesting to think about different scenarios that are possible, you know, that in transhumanism, we consider some kind of symbiosis between machines and humans, but again, in fetishist strategy it also means that those things won't be quite alive already it's interesting and complicated question and again it's not like I reject all technology and I believe there is there are many useful things in there but also I don't think that technology itself should be a fetish because it's quite a dangerous choice for humanity as species.
1: I'm curious, you know, like you were talking earlier about especially with the installation pieces. Curious, just how does like a, a new piece or, you know, a concept kind of like turn into a you know something that's gonna be more fully realized? Are you kind of writing a lot and then reflecting on things like do you see things visually like walk us through the process a little bit about maybe how you're how you're working i guess you know in more recent works and starting a piece until the time that you get to finish an installation or something like that
0: well it's really difficult (laughs) to describe this process because it's so kind of intuitive i would say and one thing leads to another i think i generally speaking because i'm Kind of relatively new to art, I would say, uh, comparing to many you know, other artists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> moving through this pretty quickly and also, you know, when you are in MFA program, you expect it to continue this rapid exploration, which I think is a, general speaking, of course, is a good thing. Kind of, I was moving from one idea to another when one piece is finished it leads me to something to some hints what the next thing can be and i never know in advance in quite advance what the next one is Mm -hmm. going to be but when i kind of looked at this fetishist contest and then i kind of Turn into this connection with technology for a bit. It united eventually in a piece that I did last fall. And it was a kind of machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't a machine, but it was a kind of machine that I created in my own basement. And I called it Meditation Station. Again, I was thinking how technology can change human nature. That's the primary focus of my interest in technology and in particular ways it can cure humanity from violence or probably it can do the other side. So this machine, it looked like basically a seed Between four screens, there was a looped video on those four screens. And the video itself was based on some kind of objects, starting from feathers and flowers and ending with uh, precision balls and bullets. Mm -hmm. And I spent 12 hours in this machine or installation and recorded in a text the associations and memories this experience brought to me. So that's when writing appeared in my work. I think it partly appeared because we went to this COVID mode and I felt like just photo documentation and didn't make any favor to my work, I couldn't document it well. So my first attempt to write was just to create a description of this machine. I continued this idea describing the experience in this machine or with this machine. It was a kind of... Really, I don't know why these particular memories came to my mind when I spent those 12 hours in this device. That's how psychoanalysis works. You don't know such things in advance. But I felt like it was quite a disturbing experience for me. So I decided to shift the power and created a miniature of this device, of this installation. So for the real-size, life-size installation, I was a subject But for the model, the model was the subject, and I was in control. And I used this model later to create um, stop-motion animation. So it also reminded me of children's games, you know, because, like, you manipulate all these dollhouses or something to recreate this adult experience on a safe scale, I would say. But it also led me to think more about trauma theory, because, you know, the trauma theory, it was initially developed by Freud also when he worked with World War One veterans. And he compared the experience that those uh, veterans had uh, when they repeated their traumatic experience in their dreams all the time with the games that his grandchild had when he repeated some kind of real-life traumatic experience in his games all the time. And he built this connection, which is still kind of is predominant in uh, traumatic studies, that trauma experience is suppressed by our consciousness, but it comes back in our subconsciousness in form of constant repetition. And the purpose of this repetition is to take control. So we didn't have control over the situation in the past. That's why it traumatized us. But now when we repeat it over and over again, we're kind of gaining the sense of control over it. So it's a kind of our coping device to trauma but also I was thinking about how this kind of recreation of trauma sometimes it's just you know recreated in memories and dreams but often people who had an abusive childhood then choose an abusive partner when they're adults for Mm -hmm. example so sometimes it gets more real than just dreams and kind of memories and I was thinking that this repetition of trauma contributes to the violence around us And also the current study of trauma, which were developed in the beginning of the 21st century, they still are based on Freudian studies, but they kind of were reworked, I would say. One of the ideas that now is considered that how this collective especially collective traumatic experience changes identity of people who were involved in this experience, but also of their children, that it's kind of trans-historical qualities that it can be transferred to the next generation and actually reshaped what people think about themselves. And one of my friends advised me to look at the writing of a British psychoanalytic, Adam Phillips, and he has a very different approach to this idea. So if Freud came from the point that violence in people is unavoidable. It's just we're born with it and our goal is suppress it. And everything was built around this. Then Adam Phillips, he comes with the idea that maybe not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe we're not violent by nature. Maybe we just understand ourselves as kind of violent creatures. So this repetition of trauma seems to fit well to what Adam Phillips says, because if it does change our identity and does change our understanding of the world around us, then we kind of expect more of this to come. And we live in this constant expectation of some kind of catastrophe to happen with us or with the world around us. And what Adam Phillips suggests is to unlearn. And of course, it's a very utopian idea to un- unlearn that we are violent and people around us are violent and that this world is violent. <laughs> <It's kind> of, <laughs> I don't understand how we can unlearn it, but I like the idea because it gives some hopes. <laughs> I was researching different utopias and, you know, utopias, they deal primarily with how to suppress violence in people so they can live together. <laughs> Otherwise, kind of, any collective falls apart if people are violent and they compete with each other so the only recipe that any utopia can find is just to suppress violent which means suppress individuality of people and i don't quite like it <laughs> so i think that adam film's theory it provides this kind of new hope that you can be not violent and still keep your individuality, which I kind of like. So my thesis installation will be about this process of unlearning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, it is staged as a kind of sci-fiction scene or something like this, but it's not a contemporary sci-fiction. It's like science fiction of 1960s, 1970s. And I think why it's important. I think 1960s and 1970s was the point when the humanity decided what direction the technology will develop. And if before we thought about technology more in terms of application to our processes, like we will fly and explore space or we will build flying cars or something like this. So after that, when internet was introduced, we considered technology, not like a tool, but rather like a substitute to ourselves. People are mortal. And when we think about How can we get this internal life? We're not thinking how to modify our biological structure. We're thinking how to digitalize our brain and put it in a machine and machine can live forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's a completely different approach to technology. Instead of being at service, it became a replacement. And I think this turn happened around 1970s. My understanding of science fiction is kind of rooted in this period for that. Point, and also I have some video component which uh, demonstrates the process of unlearning <laughs> mm-hmm. and some audio as well which is not directly connected to uh, video but my my work does origin from psychoanalysis so it's kind of some kind of associations that come with this installation and with this
1: this setup. Well it's interesting to think about you know putting people in that environment or context to kind of reevaluate, you know, as you're kind of describing some of these things or like shifts in the way that we think about technology, what it will be used for. I don't know why, but I immediately start thinking of these like DARPA robots, you know, where you can kind of like see them essentially become super hyper militarized, you know, and and like every couple of months they come out with like one that can like flip or run upstairs. or it is kind of really interesting to think about the direction that we've gone. And I guess it totally makes sense to kind of try to think about a way to kind of almost unlearn that or to kind of, I guess, try to reshift our focus. And so, again, it, it just sounds kind of fascinating, I guess, to, to kind of talk more specifically about this this thesis exhibition. So kind of give us some details.
0: It's actually is a very interesting setup, very relevant to what I'm talking about. <laughs> is this happening at the Gallery of 100 and it's a physical installation? So it's a physical exhibition I and five other uh, wonderful artists from the program will install in this place physically. But then this place will be digitalized Mm -hmm. through 3D scanning and 3D photo technology and will be presented online on the Gallery 400 website. So I don't know how the digital version of it will look. I have some idea, of course, but... It 's something in between photography and virtual reality, I would say mm-hmm. so you the viewer can see some details, but i also i 'm sure that video and sound component will be available like on their own, in addition to the this kind of 3D photo documentation.
1: You kind of described earlier, like you're very intuitive in terms of like working through a piece. And then I would imagine that kind of leads you into a direction for a new piece. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm just kind of curious when it comes to like maybe thinking about this one. I mean, you, you kind of have a game plan going in, but I, I mean, are there things that you're kind of worried about in terms of this this piece or... Are there th- things that you're just kind of expecting that will, will change or, you know, on the fly?
0: Usually with installation like this, the main worry is just the technical part that something can, you know, fall mm-hmm. apart. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stay in place. So something like this can happen. And also it's always a question of time. Sometimes you can imagine that it will take you two hours and in reality it will take you 20 hours because you don't know it in advance until you really work in this kind of real size scale. So my main concern now is basically the technical part of this installation. But also when it's decided, it's a kind of done for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm already beyond it. I still need to complete it. <laughs> but I'm already thinking about next project.
1: Is there like a particular project or thing that you're thinking about? Like, again, that you kind of have to repress, I guess?
0: Honestly, I'm still kind of with this work, with this series of work. The next step, as I see it, will be a video-based work. And it kind of will combine uh, this outdoor installation and uh, some of my sculptural objects. And also, I will try to use myself as a object in this video work for the first time kind of i think every artist comes to this idea that they're the continuation of their work and i'm interested to try it again i will continue this exploration of this relation between technology and psychology and also i'm interested in landscape because landscape is basically a battlefield between technology and humanity
1: Interesting. So it sounds like you've got a little bit of a direction kind of moving forward, and I'm sure there are things that are going to change, obviously.
0: It is a challenging situation, for sure, for every artist uh, graduating from a graduate school. And uh, I think the format of my work may change. So I have some space at home. I do depend on different tools. I was thinking about some spaces where... Artists get shared access to these tools. And again, I'm working with such a huge range of materials, like starting from ceramics to 3D printing. There is no, like, any (laughs) sane way to keep all this equipment in my studio and I think it would be just a waste of everything like money, space and (laughs) resources. So I was thinking of some places around the city where artists have shared access to those resources. And for sure installation as a format does depend on the available spaces. So I will for sure apply. I won't probably apply to many residences because I have family and I can't move anywhere from the city sure. but I, I, I'm I, for sure interested in some kind of exhibition spaces where I can actually install my work but also you know that it probably won't happen every day
2: mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> and
0: I was thinking about how the format of my work will can change and I was thinking about coming back to drawing and painting maybe or printmaking, which I really enjoyed, and generally speaking about different formats, is the same ideas may be presented, but that are kind of accessible for me as an independent artist versus a, as a graduate student, mm-hmm. and I think film or moving image work is one of those formats. Again, it combines this outdoor space, which is available kind of for everyone. You don't have to be in a program to access it. Mm-hmm. It provides this bigger scale to work with ideas, so it doesn't require that much resources as actual installation. So this one, just few ideas I'm thinking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I want to make sure, too, where can everybody kind of see you know, this process evolve. Are you someone that's kind of posting, you know, stories and what you're doing on Instagram a lot?
0: I didn't post on Instagram a lot because I was so very busy. <laughs> <laughs> but I probably will post more often when I graduate. At least that's my what my plan is. And also, I think my projects, they're not fast. They take me several months at least. I do try to keep my website and my Instagram channel updated.
1: Just go ahead and share that again.
0: AnastasiaSidnikova.com, And my Instagram name is Stacy underline Sitnikova.
1: Yeah, well, obviously after this all this work, you know, I think that's one of the things that's so... Difficult not only about being in a pandemic, obviously, but then also to kind of be in, in studying or finishing a degree like a, a heavy thesis where you're doing all this writing and you've spent all this time. So, again, it's got to be pretty pretty exciting at the same time, you know, while also maybe almost sad in some ways to, to see it come to an end. But it sounds like you've got so many ideas to kind of keep exploring. So, um, you know, again, that's probably a great place to be. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to apply. And, and again, it's been so interesting to listen to you uh, talk about your work.
0: Thank you so much. The pleasure is totally mine.
1: Thanks once again, Anastasia for joining me. Be sure to check out her website, AnastasiaSytnikova.com and follow her on Instagram at Stacy underscore Her MFA thesis exhibition entitled ordinary horrors opens at gallery 400 at the university of Illinois, Chicago. That show is virtual and runs April 16th through 23rd with a thesis talk on april 23rd from 6 to 7 30 p.m be sure to check out citybreak.com for all of those links so you can see the exhibition and thanks once again to anastasia for applying to the student competition that we do annually we just opened our 2021 student competition so if you're listening to this and you are a ba bfa ma mfa currently enrolled or graduated in 2020 please apply to the competition it's super easy You just submit a small fee, you send an email off with all of your information, including your portfolio or website, Instagram handle, and that's pretty much it. Our juror this year is Kendra Balgren, who is the director and curator at James May Gallery in Wisconsin. Super great space, so we're very excited to have her on board, and once again, she'll be selecting five winners from the undergraduate and graduate categories, 10 total, so once again... Check it out at studiobreak.com. Look for the student competition page for more information. And of course, if you know any other MFA candidates or BFA candidates, anybody in the visual arts that is interested in applying, please share this opportunity. If you did enjoy today's episode and you're checking out Studio Break for the first time, check out the archived episodes on studiobreak.com. Each of the posts there have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course, you can listen right there on studiobreak.com or just subscribe to the podcast. And then that way, you've always got something to listen to and keep your mind going in the studio. Music for today is by Golden Shadow, which features myself... Ben Cohan, that's M. Ben Cohan Studio on Instagram. Be sure to check out his paintings there. And of course, Brett Beery, you can find on Instagram as well. That's at Brett Beery. If you follow him on Instagram, you'll find he has some albums linked up there, so check those out. You can see my paintings at DavidLinaway.com and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at DavidLinaway. I am excited to be part of a three person exhibition opening up at McLean County Art Center entitled Pathways. That's with Nicole. Roller and Megan Hines and once again it opens up in a couple of weeks in April and we're gonna have a podcast to discuss that exhibition which I'm super excited about of course if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to like studio break on Facebook you can find us on Twitter at studio break and of course on Instagram be sure to follow say hello at studio underscore break Once again, it's always great hearing from listeners who enjoy all these artists talking about their work and filling their studios with interesting ideas. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. We'll talk to you real soon.